you been eating? Nice to see you. Oh, well, that's that's so sweet of you to say. What have you been eating? See here, I'll give you a visual reference. It's like a small Starbucks double shot espresso thing. Um, you know, it gives me the boost I need, and uh, the caffeine constricts the blood vessels in my head and takes away my morning migraine. So it's not only tasty, but it's medicinal. What about you? I myself had a brown sugar cinnamon pop tart. Do you do you toast your pop tarts? Um, usually I did not this time because I was trying to eat quickly and I couldn't uh, wait. But I, I generally are you a toasted or untoasted? I feel like we've discussed this. I I only toast my pop tarts, and I feel strongly about people who don't. I I think that's fair. Do you eat? I mean, the packages come with two, so do you eat two at a time? Uh, I feel like that's a lot of pop tart I, for one sitting. I usually do. Um. But I feel like I, I I feel like one and a half pop tarts is the correct amount. But once I get to that second, what half, do you do with, with the last twenty five percent? Uh, I mean I eat it, but just begrudgingly. When? Oh, I see. Oh, name your three or your favorite kind of pop tart: brown sugar, cinnamon. Um, yeah, g- give me a few more. S'mores is good. S'mores, yeah. Do you know the hot fudge sundae? That, that was gonna be my a- third one. Yeah, also there's an Oreo one that's very delicious. I've never had it myself. Uh, What about the fruity Pop-Tarts? I feel like that, like, uh, why even try to act like you're kind of healthy? I've had, I mean, I don't have, like, an issue with them, but the thing is, it's like, I'm I'm not going for nutrition when I eat a Pop-Tart. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. Like, you might as well, like, like lean into the skid a little bit. And that, like, if you're having a Pop-Tart, have hot fudge sundae. Just, like, go for it completely. It, it's it's garbage. Accept that. And um, and then and just enjoy it as much as possible. Parth, so this was nearly uh, the lost pod. Uh, this is true. Uh, bef- do, do we want to cut to the intro so we can tell the, the, the lovely listeners how they were almost unable to listen to this episode? How we found the Lost Pod. We relocated it. Should we do that? We shall, yes. Cue the intro. Welcome back to our show, Craft Services, where we talk about the movies with new and improved voices, yeah? This is true. This is true. Also, yes. Trent, your voice level, perfect. Beautiful. Oh, I'm, thanks. I'm trying to talk soft. Each week, uh, we interview someone who worked on a movie we like, because um, we're a podcast about what? The movies. Yeah. Um, if you haven't heard about podcasts yet, they're a thing. Film, also a thing. So just combining those. This was nearly the lost pod, Parth. That's true. That's true. Ex- explain why, how, and uh, and how we found it. So this week we interviewed Joseph Sissio, who was the second unit camera operator, or one of them, for Spider-Man 2, as well as Spider-Man 3, and it was... A- and Iron Man, and Iron Man 2. Yeah, he's done a lot of cool things, uh, a lot of cool superheroes. He also did Logan. Wasn't he very nice, best of all? He was incredibly nice. He was very gracious with his time. Uh, I I called him Mr. Sissio, and he said, "Hey, call me call Joe." Me Joe, and I was like, mm, "Yeah, it's so nice to be treated like an adult." Yeah, by an adult. Yeah, but because I haven't worked on Spider-Man Two at all, compared to him, who's definitely worked on Spider-Man Two, so that's why he's on the show. We interviewed him, and we use a site called Squadcast. And sorry, Squadcast, we're going to call you out. Uh, no, but also this is 
uh, we're we're gonna pat squad casts on, the on their digital back at, at the end of the story. Yeah, after they betray us. But, but Trent, let's keep the suspense rolling. So okay. we're recording this interview, right? And he's on the call. And the way Squadcast works is everything is going swimmingly. The way the way Squadcast works is that it records each person's tracks individually. So at the end of a recording, when we press stop. What happens is we wait for like 30 seconds or so, and then the guest track uploads. Is this correct? This is correct. After we stop recording, there's like a limbo period where they can't leave right away. Um, So we have to small talk them and talk about the weather. And this is where things got a little hairy. Yes. As we were small talking Joseph Sissio, and I was like, yeah, it's cloudy. And I saw panic looked on Parth's face. Because what had happened was... We were small talking, and usually what's happening is Trent is, uh, you know, entertaining our guests while we force them to stay with us for longer than they probably want. Um, so then what happens is I look at how long the time codes are, and it shows that Trent's track, it's about an hour long. My track, it's about an hour long. Joseph Sissio's track is 16 minutes long. And that it's at this point where I go, fuck. Yeah. Because I thought that we had lost the interview and I was so scared because I was like, where did this, how did this happen? Why is this happening? And then I had to tell Joseph Sissio to his face, to his face, damn it, that we may have to redo this interview because the site didn't record it. And to his credit, Joseph Sissio was incredibly nice about it and said he would gladly record whenever he was available. But you could sense the pain in his, in his chuckle. Um, and he said, okay, I'm going to need, I'm going to need a break. We can do this next week. We once, we once lost an episode and a discussion, Promising Young Woman with Emily, and we had to recycle a lot of, uh, of what was said. And it was really painful. And I'm sure for an interview to make this man answer, answer the, the same questions. It would have been a lot to ask. And so, yes. And so then what happens is. Um, I'm freaking out, and then we say, okay, I, I guess you can go, because it doesn't seem like there's anything we can do, so Joseph Sissio leaves, and then Trent calls me in a panicked voice and goes, Parth, did we just lose this episode? And I go, I think so. And so then I start looking up if there's any ways to uh, recover a recording on Squadcast, and we find out, and this is where we're going to pat the digital back mm-hmm. of Squadcast, is that what they do is they record a low-quality MP3 file from even before you press record. So whenever anybody joins the call, it immediately starts recording. And the funny thing about this is that we didn't know this, so a lot of things that Parth and I had thought were off the record were were, were there on the record. And uh, we had to, to trudge through hours worth of footage to find a really low-quality file of us chatting with Joe Sissio. But there it was. But there it is. In all, of its, in all of its MP3 glory. So thank you, Squadcast, because that is a useful feature. We hope never to have to use it again. But um, if you hear a slightly lower quality on our wonderful guest voice, it's because of that. But I think, I think it turned out fine, Trent. Speaking of lost episodes, our, our second episode was nearly a lost episode. The, the, the Kurt Vanderbash was a very similar situation. Yeah. Uh, our Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi episode with storyboard artist Kurt Vanderbash was also nearly lost, but that was because we didn't realize that he had to stay for the file to upload, so he left, 
and it just never did. And so we thought that we'd lost the entire interview and then had to frantically email him and beg him to come back, which, again, he was very gracious with his time, and we were able to get the interview, obviously, but... Yeah, this this was I would say this was scarier because with that first one I kind of immediately knew what we had to do whereas with this time this time I just assumed that it just didn't have a recording. Also that was our first interview ever. I, I felt completely dejected and like I'd gotten kicked in the teeth when that happened. And now on our, you know, 20th interview, I was like, "Come on, we've been do- we've done this 19 times." Yeah. And now this? Yeah. But should we? Is this enough about the uh, enough about the inner workings of podcast production? Yeah. Do we want the guests to listen to this, or should we just throw this out the window? Yeah, sure, they can listen. We worked hard on uh, it. I guess. I guess. I guess since we 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 had we to... asked questions, he answered them. Need I say more? Yeah. So, without further ado, hello everybody, and welcome to our interview with Joseph Sissio. He's the camera operator that's worked on such films as The Fast and the Furious, Iron Man 1 and 2, and Black Swan. He also worked on our film for today, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2, as well as its sequel, Spider-Man 3. Thank you so much for being here. Good to be here, Trent, Forrest. So just to start off, uh, what was your relationship with film as a kid? Pretty typical of like my generation. My dad had a Super 8 camera and, you know, there was every, he was trying to document everything. So first haircuts, and so we, he'd always have it with him, and and occasionally I would, uh, you know, get a hold of it and would try to, you know, try to mimic what he was doing. You know, found out that like he he was really really a bad cameraman, <laughs> <So>, but, <laughs> but but it was good that he he uh, he had you know the desire to do that, and he was just playing around. I think every, you know that was like the uh, the way to record. Uh, motion capture back in in the day and so so i knew a little bit about super eight and then that stuff got put away and went to school with the intent of uh, being a journalist so you know photojournalism would have been uh great but you know i wasn't particularly interested in in uh, still photography so i found myself wanting to uh, you know maybe be involved with storytelling or or even just doing anything that required a camera and being able to tell the story. So after, uh, after college, um, I didn't necessarily go to film school. I did take some film courses, but mainly it was more towards uh, uh, journalism, broadcast journalism, and was trying to pursue that. And accidentally, um, I got involved with documentary work and and commercials and then eventually you know, stuck me out started doing camera assisting occasional film would come into the area it's cheaper to hire someone local i uh, i knew enough not to get fired uh i guess and uh, you know but uh, i knew that i had to get a lot more experience so i decided to to move i grew up in you know, down in alabama so um you know wasn't a film hub by any stretch and Atlanta was the closest place I could actually go and see equipment, but it was either move to New York or move to Los Angeles. And I happened to work with more people from, uh, from LA. So it just was a natural uh, progression to go uh, out West. And, and that's been over 30 years ago. So, so what was the first uh, like big movie set you worked on? 
Mm, you know, it's uh, interesting. Uh, way back, I got hired on to uh, to be a camera assistant at um, uh, down in Pensacola, Florida, which was where the USS Lexington, which was a World War II aircraft carrier. It's no longer, um, I think it's like a floating museum now, but back then uh, they were using it uh, for this period piece. And, and it was like, we were even filming old uh, World War II era aircraft uh, you know, taking off from, you know, we'd go out into the Gulf of Mexico and shoot these battles, the Battle of Midway and, and uh, so, you know, I was seeing some like, wow, this is this is crazy that you could actually do this. And um, so I was really lucky, fortunate to to see that pretty early. And that was before I moved to uh, moved to Los Angeles. So so I was seeing some things pretty early on. I knew that if, if I was most of the crew that was uh, working on it, especially, you know, especially camera crew were from LA and there were some, some folks from Chicago and a few from New York. And so it was a big enough project that it hired people from all over. I thought, all right, well, if I want to continue down that path, I, I, I'm going to have to make the move. Jumping forward a little bit. Uh, how did you get involved with Spider-Man two? Everything in the industry is freelance. So you get, whether you're in camera or production design or, editorial um usually a team starts to develop and you go from one project to the next to the next so prior to to um spider-man 2 uh the director of photography uh jonathan taylor who i had worked with he's a cinematographer dp and he also he's a director dp so um jonathan i had met him on um tim burton's what was the planet of the apes so from that we you know hit it off um from the get-go and and uh to this day we still work i'm actually the show that i'm about to start uh in another few weeks is with jonathan so i think it's uh we've done 21 movies together so yeah so typically that's how it, it can work in the industry especially for camera crews and editorial crews, production design crews that you tend to flow from one project to the next, to the next, unless you leave uh, and go off into a whole different direction, like documentary or commercials or something. But on the, on the film side, on the movie side of things, you find that you start to work with a core group of folks, you know, people come and go and leave for other projects. But, um, so that's what happened with, with Spider-Man 2. Uh, he had asked me to come and operate it. And that's, that was for the um, second unit action vaccine uh, guys. So the, so the core team of folks involved with that were, were, were people uh, that had a lot of experience. Jonathan Taylor, I think his first job was as a clapper loader. He's from the UK uh, film side of things. So his uh, first job was clapper loader for Goldfinger, one of the bodies. So, um, yeah, so I was really lucky to be, you know, to be involved with, uh, with people who've been around for a long time with all this great experience. And, and, uh, so yeah, that, that's how that happened. Uh, the second unit for that, that show probably shot nearly half. I know that the, the um, Spider-Man three, which we kind of folded right into, to that, uh, project, 
I think the second unit shot more than 50% of the actual screen time because every frame, uh, typically every frame on a Marvel movie, especially that, that style Marvel movie has a VFX element and an action element as well. So it, it was a really you know, great experience because, you know, you would set up stunts or set up VFX stunts uh, and, Toby McGuire would come over or James Franco or whoever, you know, I was going to have to be in that because typically they didn't want to do a lot of face replacement, use a stunt double. Once, once uh, you see Spider-Man full head gear and everything, that's one of three um, acrobatic level, like Cirque du Soleil level uh, stunt people who are doing all that wire work. So, um, so that took the only time, you know, Toby had to be in that environment was when more generally, uh, whether it's the director or the second unit director, how would you say they communicate to you, the camera operator about what they want on a given shot or where, or where is your, uh, like directions coming from? You know, storyboards, Sam would have these fantastic storyboards, uh, drawn, from that, sometimes they would want to do an animatic, which would be done in a uh, platform. But so you would get the gist of the camera movement. And um, especially, if, you know, because the wire work would have to be pretty precise. So if you were going to have a stunt person on a wire, how that that action element would have to be filmed would, would come down to just the physics of, you know, how quickly could a camera move if it's um, say uh, spider-man moving through a canyon of manhattan you know down sixth avenue um the typically you wouldn't go and shoot that in new york we'd shoot the background elements and at that time you know this is pre-digital so we're shooting film usually um, 35 millimeter four perth pull down or vista vision which is you know eight perf uh, horizontal. And so once you are filming with that large, uh, you know, target area of film, they can do, ILM was doing most of the VFX. And then, then it was um, Sony Image Works that, would, that ultimately took over um, the VFX uh, post-production with compositing and CG lighting, CG element that had to be, uh, you know, rotoscoped in and, and also, once we figured out the physics of, say, you know, Spider-Man is coming through a canyon, that's all in green screen. We didn't really have like a, a wireframe uh, background that we could put in and kind of see how that would work. So we, we kind of knew, all right, well, we're going to make that into a more dynamic shot is if we can bring the camera and the, uh, and the uh, stunt player across. So now the closing rate would be a lot quicker rather than just having the camera sitting still and having the, the stunt person come at it. We could move the camera and usually that would require another, you know, put the camera on a um, on something called a spider cam, which had nothing to do with Spider-Man. It was, um, it was a way to digitally move the camera on these uh, lovely winch systems that was nearly motion control repeatable. So if you took it back to one, the camera where it was positioned in space would be within, you know, 
fractions of a millimeter as to exactly where it was on the previous day. So you could do multiple passes, nearly have uh, the equivalent of a motion control uh, pass. And that's where we we can take our experience and understand there might be a better way to, to make that happen. Usually Sam or Jonathan or John Dykstra or the stunt uh, director, who's a guy named Dan Bradley, who's gone off to do you know, did a lot of the Bourne identities and uh, uh, Bourne movies. So everybody knew everything. They knew what they were doing photographically uh, from a VFX standpoint, from a stunt standpoint. But then at some point in time, physics will just not allow you to do um, what you want to do without that's where we could understand what piece of gear could accomplish the mission. Usually Sam would, especially if there was uh, one of the lead actors was involved with it, he would be there to direct them. But as far as getting input from the directors, whether it was Sam or or Jonathan or or John, I mean, immediately they would say, yeah, that's not going to work. What if, can you outrun him on a pan and then we can, let's, Let's make a, a different maneuver. And so we're, everybody's kind of working in concert on how to uh, accomplish, you know, the particular shot mission. Because ultimately those shots, whether they last for 30 seconds or three seconds or less, I mean, they're really critical to the to the timing of that particular edit. And it's, you know, if you looking at an animatic it's usually when they sign off on that it's a pretty precise visual it it a slip and slide one way or the other but you can almost just plug in the live action elements and then once you see the compositing it's like wow that that kind of worked exactly how everybody envisioned it mm-hmm. yeah we we listened to the commentary track for i mean all of the Spider-Man movies but um, I think like Sam Raimi said that he has like nine to 12 storyboard artists. So, I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like it's pretty accurate to the story. Like what you shoot is pretty accurate to the storyboards. Yeah, most definitely. And I mean, it, it, even Sam, who's, you know, I, I think brilliant um, treatment of just everything that, whether it was Stan Lee or, or whoever was doing the original, you know, color and draw, you know, like the suits had to, be something that what Stan Lee would say, wow, that's exactly how I, I envisioned it way back in the materials that we we did, uh, you know, just screen testing for different different reflecting value. Of, uh, certainly brought in like five different fabrics, you know, so they would make the whole suit, bring someone out wearing it, and then, you know, rotate them around in the different types of lighting that uh, most likely would be, you know, day exterior, night exterior, night interior, day interior, and you'd start to see how those suits would work. And then it's like, okay, and I think even Stan Lee was, um, was pretty instrumental on, on like, you know, the color was exactly how he, he envisioned it. And uh, so, yeah, that was, and Sam was really true to the, you know, to the art form, I, I think, in a big way. In reference to Sam Raimi's general shooting style, um, were many takes required per each setup, or was there any uh, shot in particular over the two movies that like took like more trials than than others? You know, you know, I, again, doing the the action VFX um, unit, 
you know, so that second unit, Sam would come over and typically we would finish those uh, with not a lot of fuss on him out. You know, I, I didn't see that, but, but it, usually that happens, especially if there's a stunt element because, um, you know, the reset could be uh, a long way. Not that I remember lots of pyro, but you can imagine on, on movies that require stuff right. crashing and whatnot. A reset, These are big movies. Yeah. Uh, the re- resets could take hours because you're having to reload pyro and reload this, and, you know, and, and, and the reason why you're hosing it down with a lot of cameras, even though one angle might be the, the best angle that would carry that, that VFX and that stunt through but it's always good to have something to, uh, you know, cut away to. And, and uh, but when Sam would show up, it's usually he was there. It might've been a, a stunt element that Toby McGuire or James Franco or whoever might've, he, he was there mainly concerned about the dialogue and, and certainly about how the shot was working. But I don't remember uh, doing many takes to be truthful. I can't, I can't recall that we, do more than just a handful of takes. The um, the Doc Ock um, scene where uh, Toby McGuire and, uh, and Kirsten Dunst are in a New York deli, right? If you remember when the right, yeah. car gets we remember. thrown in. Okay, so we were shooting that. Meanwhile, uh, main unit was on stage over at Sony where that New York deli unit uh, was filmed was believe it or not on the back lot of Universal because the the back lot already had a bit of a New York uh, Mulberry Street you know uh, feel and that deli um, set was nothing more than a facade. They had to build a trench plates that were vertical and then there was a forty five degree massive like you know one foot uh, diameter poles or, or one foot uh, square beams that would hold it up. So when the car smacked into it, it wouldn't continue going. Like the background, was that just like a plate then? No, no, that that was all practical. Uh, but the car coming through the window. Um, so when you saw the interior of the deli, that was all just, you know, deli set dressing, the tables, the board, um, you know, tablecloths, all that was was actually there so um we did all the you know the scenes with uh, i guess uh first unit came over and did um the dialogue scenes with you know with the actors and then once that was done they left we moved in and now this is all the stunt work to do and the actual practical special effects so we did all the plates even had the stunt players moving out of the way so as if they were there and now they're moving out of the way there were there were tables that were maybe on wires that would as if they were getting hit by by a car and then once we got all those elements done you know we got everybody out of the way it was just go time and so three two one action the car comes through at nearly 100 feet a second or more so when all those elements were put together you had the A side, which was with, you know, stunt players and the B side with, with the car actually coming through. I just have to ask because um, the train scene in this movie is my like favorite action scene in a movie ever. Uh, so, you know, if 
I guess if you were shooting the action stuff, did you, you did work on that and anything you could say on that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that was, uh, we, we actually shot that at stage 14, actually two stages at, at Sony Columbia 14 was where the actual subway train car was on like air, you know, imagine air platforms to get the right, you know, when you're on, on the subway, it's kind of rocking and rolling and to get all that movement right. So the actors didn't have to move uh, themselves. Uh, they were being moved by the, you know, subway train movement. And then, uh, so all the, all that was done on stage, green screen. So they had all the elements of, uh, you know, the interior of the, of the trains. And then I don't know if that was CG, the, the actual tunnels that, you know, underground, but, uh, Pretty sure that those were, let's say, somehow they may have shot those elements in Chicago or some other underground area, maybe New York. I doubt it was New York, but but it was pretty. You know, once you're underground, it's pretty nondescript, and pretty dark. So I think they they were embellishing that with uh, maybe some CG elements. But all the actual acting and all the stunt work that actually uh, was done live action actually took some. They built some uh, subway cars the train tracks where he falls down through the you know the railroad ties and all that that was on the stage that was all green screen so all those elements were were done right at sony but um yeah so that was that was you know old school compositing and and, uh, which was really the best way because it would would have been really tough to try to do that all in a entirely green screen environment. I know that Doc Ock's tentacles were controlled by a team of puppeteers. And I was wondering if you, if you saw that in action at all, and I'm sure that that would be an interesting balance with, with it was largely green screen based also. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember, uh, Albert Molina having to wear like the, the, the vest, those arms, as you can imagine, they were practical. They were built out of, I mean, they were elegant. You know the the whole vertebrae, if you will, you know of, of how those things move. But the, but you're right; they had the puppeteer uh, each one and do wire removal and all. And and it was a pretty heavy uh, piece of apparatus, so it wasn't like you could just go walk around. With it. But the way it was, you know, it's almost like a steady cam vest. You know, you wear that, and then they could remove that. If I remember, it comes out of the spine, right? Yeah. So. Uh, so all that was overlaid with really great VFX, but the uh, but to get the arms right, they those were actually built. I mean, they would go into velvet sleeves when they were done, just to protect them. But they were really, really well designed, and you know, just the movement, as you can imagine, you know, so what you would expect. Not maybe not like an octopus can move, but you know, certainly uh, it had that articulation that allowed it to flex and. And, you know, so it gave them a basis to go by and then everything else was CG after that. Were, were you a part of any of the stuff in the hospital that was shot? That was, um, a lot of that was main unit as well because, you know, Sam is right. got this great actor and uh, Alfred Molina doing doing what he does best. And uh, But, yeah, we, we mainly like the stunt elements of that where people are getting, you know, killed and wiped out or beat up and all that so electrocuted yeah, yeah exactly so that that was uh 
that was stuff that we we did in that set that uh, operating or ER set or whatever it was. Uh, so on a, any large production, about how many camera operators uh, like are needed on set, and can you also describe what the role of assistant camera person is? Uh, sure. Yeah. Typically, I mean, on a stunt, you know, action unit, you can have a lot of cameras because you're, you're trying to make sure you've got uh, plenty of coverage for that, especially if the stunt is going on for within a, you know, if it's an outdoor environment where the stunt lasts for a thousand feet. So you can imagine you might have a Russian arm or pursuit arm that's chasing it or tracking with it. You may have a drone or a hel- or an actual, you know, human piloted full team of people in a, um, in a full-scale helicopter, ground cameras everywhere, crash cameras that if it's a, you know, sequence where a, a truck is hitting, you know, cars and careening all over the place. So, so if that, that's a pretty long uh, area, stretch of uh, area that has to cover that whole stunt, you could, you could easily have 10 operated cameras. So, you know, work on projects where you have 10 operators or more. And, uh, and that's usually, uh, and it could be a lot more depending, depending on the stunt. Typically for like, you know, even a large movie that is, um, you know, doing mainly the dialogue, uh, two cameras would do nicely because you're not having to, you know, uh, cover all that action. And usually if you, you get more than two cameras just on a, a dialogue scene that might lead up to that, there could be a compromise uh, for the main camera. So usually for, you know, like you go back to a normal, uh, traditional you know, single camera or a two camera scenario. You know, great movies have one thing in common. It's usually that that, uh, especially if it's a dialogue-driven project where you're, it's really about performance and camera performance and that choreography. Usually, it's just one camera. You know, that's that's really all that's required. But uh, uh, but as soon as it starts, the VFX and the action starts to combined that's when it can get you know the necessity to have more cameras starts to come so when you uh because you obviously ended up working on spider-man 3 as well was there any sort of like learning curve that you'd gotten through spider-man 2 that um anything specific that your experience on spider-man 2 really helped the stuff you had to do in spider-man 3 yeah i mean each each um and oh, and to get back to the camera assistants, just to finish off, when you when you see in the credit or if you hear about a camera assistant, and there's the focus puller, you know, and then there's the second AC, the second assistant camera person, and then the loader. Whether you're shooting film or digital, it's the you know the same basic you know crew count for for camera because um, whether you're shooting stunts or dialogue scenes. You, you have to have someone who can pull focus because the cameras are moving, whether you're on Technocrane, on Dolly, on, on a Russian arm thing with stunts going on. Sometimes it's night. You don't have uh, a lot of depth of field. You're on a long lens. So it's really critical that the uh, focus is, is on point. And there's no such thing as risking, uh, even with some really great tools like a Preston uh, you know, remote focus system. 
there is some autofocus capability, but it's you never risk blowing a shot by letting it do its thing because it, it can only it can give you really good accurate information as far as closing rates and things like that. But uh, the human decision on when to take focus from you know that area to you know whip pan and, and the focus needs to be on, a, on an actor who's about to give some dialogue. So all that is uh, is being done by someone who's a who's called a focus puller. And then the second assistant is usually the one who's uh, supporting the, the, the focus puller and clamping the slates and all the loaders. If it's film, they're they're bringing film. You know, they're loading in the dark room. On, you know, on stage or in a truck. So, so it's the same team of people, just different cameras, but focus pulling, hugely critical. And that's the first AC, first assistant camera. Second AC is there to, when we call for a lens change, uh, usually they go grab the lens if we're using primes, zooms, whatever, and then they swap out the lens. So, so it's just a, you know, pretty uh, um, elegant process of just you know making sure that stuff happens precisely and so so anyway that's that's what's going on there as far as um, what was learned from spider-man 2 to spider-man 3 you start to you know every um, every movie has its its um, uh, you know its look and it's uh lensing and all those things that start to develop you know usually try to establish that before you get out into principal photography but but a lot of things start to get learned um you know along the way a certain actor or an actress their close-up lens may not be a, a 50 but it might be a 65 or a 75 they just look it just kind of gathers up all what they do and it makes them look either a little more heroic or, you know, depending on what uh, you're trying to, you know, uh, do in that scene. But, you know, like a Coen Brothers movie, I remember uh, Roger Deakins, you know, I think he opened up a, a, a bottle of champagne when he could get them to go to like a 35 millimeter. That was it. And prior to that, their, their widest or longest lens might have been like a 27 millimeter, you know because of the physical comedy and how they like to tell stories. They never thought, you know, about getting into, you know, 150 millimeter. Just there was too much going on in that frame to miss in uh, the wide angles, how they saw life and, and their storytelling. And it really worked, works well. So you start developing this Bible of like uh, the treatment of lensing, everything, the look, the, the color timing and all that. But, but as far as the, you know, with action and VFX, what was carried over from Spider-Man 2 to Spider-Man 3 was, uh, yeah, trying to refine uh, refine that that look and, and refine how you could move the camera and be a partner in that, that dance of the wire work, especially, you know, you've got Spider-Man on, so you have a stunt person on wire. How do you make that more dynamic? rather than that person flying by camera, which a real close flyby is usually really dynamic, but you can't draw every, you know, you can't ask a storyboard artist to, oh, make this more dynamic, so it must be that he comes close to camera. Well, what if we can bring the camera into that scene a little more? And what's the 
what are the tools that allow that to happen? So, so yeah, you learn, you know, from every project, which is really the point of uh, good cinematography. I think that like whatever you knew, you know, last month or last year or 10 years ago, it's still valid, but it, you can take that experience or take what you know and then retool it a little bit for something that might be appropriate for a project that had nothing to do with Spider-Man. So, yeah, but there, there was definitely a learning curve that, you know, continued on. I um, So it was great to, you know, have that challenge to say, yeah, we can always make this better. Or we can... In reference to Spider-Man 3, both Sandman and Venom uh, are, you know, very uh, VFX-based, and I'm sure it was quite the spectacle to see the before compared to the after. So did you see that in the works at all? Yeah, yeah, no, crazy. I mean, it, there was, like, in the uh, scene the fight sequence in the uh, armored car. There was a point where you could, yeah, you could build a false bottom, put some sand, have Thomas, you know, with this, he'd wear, you know, like this prosthetic, which was, you know, his, his weapon of choice, you know, but, but that would just get him part of the way, almost like the Doc Ock, get the armature on the actor. And then the VFX will at least, you know, go, go from there a lot of times you couldn't um either the stuntman say alfred molina they couldn't do what they need to do with that big heavy apparatus and often they would even pin it on a cable to so they wouldn't have to wear 30 40 50 pounds of of this armature and be able to move with any kind of quickness you know so being nimble with that uh venom was a whole the suit for venom uh, they wanted to get that right because a lot of that was practical. But then, you know, then, like you said, there were CG elements. It just had, it had to be done that, that way. And so being able to marry the, the practical elements with the, the CG elements, that was the trick. And, that you know, can, again, having uh, someone like John Dykstra there and, and Scott, Scott Dyke was his assistant, who ultimately became the uh, VFX uh, supervisor for Spider-Man three. So he learned a lot. Everybody was learning a lot to, you know, to follow through with, uh, the core, you know, design of what, uh, what Sam was wanting. And, and really Sam was just making sure that he, he was carrying through, uh, the natural progression of Spider-Man as it goes from, you know, two dimensional, uh, comic strip to, to a two dimensional, motion cap comic strip with with um you know with real humans and that was an interesting trick to to see all how uh yeah so spider-man's not the only superhero related movie that you've worked on you've also worked on iron man one and two with john favreau and we're wondering what uh those movies were like yeah it's uh so uh spider-man was you know marvel uh intellectual property that sony studios sunny columbia studios uh, was uh was doing and and um and then iron man one and two was marvel's pre-disney for it you know so that was before they were acquired by disney so they were a true standalone silo at that point they were producing it that was their intellectual property they hired the same <clears throat> teams of people that um even though it wasn't sam raimi that but a lot of the, the and, and his core folks, but 
a lot of folks, especially in the, the second unit, an action unit that did Spider-Man uh, two and three, one, two and three actually uh, folded right into Iron Man. So at least on the action and the VFX side, there was there was a common team on uh, Maddie Libertique uh, was the main unit DP. John Favreau, of course, as you mentioned, was the was the main unit director. So, uh, so basically, the same method that was established on on Spider-Man was used on Iron Man. So you had um, you know the main unit doing the you know all the dialogue scenes and some action scenes as well, but primarily the dialogue scenes. We would you know do the action elements for um, so when when Tony Stark goes to uh, the Hindu Kush or goes to Afghanistan to show the generals the new, you know, technology of Stark Industries, when that ambush happened, that was shot up in what's called the Alabama Hills of the Sierra Nevada near Mount Whitney, out on the east side of the Sierra Nevada mountain range. So, it really does look like we saw pictures of the Hindu Kush, and you, know, you got like this, you know, down in the bottom of the mountains, they're kind of beige orange and then as you get into higher elevation it's more granite like and it looked I'm sure for people who live near the Hindu Kush would say it looks nothing like it but from just a photograph it, it had similar uh, power so that's where that that was all shot and that was a place where they shot many westerns John Houston back in the you know way back you know I think they shot Gunga Den there back in the 30s or 40s. And now. So it's been a place where, um, you know, filmmaking has been going on there for a long time. And it's about three three or four-hour drive uh, northeast of uh, Los Angeles. So you also worked on uh, Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift. And speaking of, you know, stunt-heavy action sequences, I would imagine you got to see a bunch of cars explode. And tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, I can't remember all the ones, yeah, but there was, what I was so impressed with was the, uh, the drifting, you know, because I had sure. seen the titular you know, drifting, of, of, <laughs> right? You know, so, so when you're filming it, it's like, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing that those cars are doing what they can do. And the, the drivers, there was Reese Millen, world class uh, drift drivers, rally car drivers. The cars were, um, because it had, you know, some of it took place in Tokyo. We shot all that, all the action stuff in LA. The uh, beginning of the movie where that, uh, the old muscle car and, uh, is racing through the, the subdivision that was being built. That was all in Victorville, California, which was meant to be Arizona. So that was couple hours uh, east three hours east of uh of los angeles but the all the tokyo night stuff that was all la and it's called lower grand so pretty easy to dress you know los angeles for tokyo there, there were some vfx elements of that but the huge um intersection in tokyo that uh, those elements were shot there but very little uh background plates uh, most of it was all done practically and uh, just changing everything out the best you could to, uh, you know, Tokyo Street vending machines and things like that, signage and all that. But, but yeah, the cars were uh, right-hand drive to you know, 
to, to be, and they were built in, in Japan with all the drift cars. The, the uh, Mustang was, was, that was the biggest thing. Reese Millen was tasked with trying to drift that. And they went through a lot of trouble because, you know, most drift cars are turbocharged, light, alloy motors, with a lot of torque going to the rear end. But uh, it, you know, required some really great drivers to do that. Yeah. And, you know, you see, see some cars, you know, that get blown up. And, uh, uh, but the most impressive stuff is the, uh, the drifting. And Terry uh, Leonard, who was the, uh, the stunt director, and he, you know, it wasn't like, I think he started out as a, uh, he doubled uh, a lot of actors way back. Terry, you know, I think he retired by now, but uh, he uh, he started out his career on a John, John Wayne movie back in the 60s. So his experience was more like a cowboy. And he learned, he thought, well, if, you know, Westerns are not the only uh, form of films Hollywood is doing, so I better learn something else. And he learned. Uh, taught himself, bought a race car, really wanted to learn driving. So how he could apply those skills to, uh, you know, to movie making and filmmaking. And, and then he really studied drifting. And I, I want to say Terry went to Japan and just went to watch it and see mystique of it, you know, and, and uh, drifting is really not a fact. We're not doing a hundred miles an hour. It's like really elegant. You're only do it 30 30 miles an hour, you can go faster, but it's really happening at a fairly slow rate of speed. So what he thought about was, oh, if we're doing drifting where cars are, we're looking, we're chasing the drift cars or we're leading them, I have to have cars moving. And those cars have to be in precise position so the drift can happen, you know, around and through and all that take one and take two and take three, you can't just arbitrarily start to say, hey, car number 27, make sure you're up ahead. You, know, you want to keep that, uh, keep the spacing uh, perfect. When we did uh, perpendicular side view, those cars were never moving. You're passing by them and we're only doing 35 miles an hour. The cars that are being passed, it made it a lot easier not having them move. So they were sitting still, but you're, on a profile angle, you, you don't know that the cars are not moving. And that was a really, uh, you know, interesting way to do it. Safe. It, it, he was all about safety. I don't think we, one car was crashed accidentally, which is a trick, you know? So, uh, usually you have a, a fender bender here and there, but, uh, but Terry, uh, he made that into a very safe with all that stuff going on. You would think, like, man, there should have been some near misses, especially for camera. There were a couple of close things, but not the way you would call it. Wow, that was that was a close call. We we nearly took the camera out, and they never have. So to just talk about one last uh, other movie that you worked on, I'm wondering what work you did on Black Swan, because mm-hmm. um, that's not a very uh, there, I wouldn't say there's any drifting of cars no, in that movie. No, less, it, less, it, drifting, it, less drifting. drifting yeah. but it, it's, uh, yeah, to watch uh, really, uh, you know, skilled uh, dancers do what they do is, you know, it's more, more elegant than many, you know, drift guards. But they, they are, like, amazingly, they're just so strong. You don't think of uh, uh, someone who can, dance like that as being you know obviously the guys that have to hold up a dancer and all 
but all the dancers are strong and they're all injured, which that's one thing you find out. They're like every, every athlete, you know, whether they play tennis or football or what, what have you, they're playing injured. That's part of like the, the core test. You know, it's like how, how injured can you be and still do your job at the, you know, at the, uh, New York Ballet Company, you know, and so so what you did, you found that all these these dancers are so good at what they do, but you don't get out of that game without injuries, you know. And anyway, Maddie had called me and said, "Hey, I'm doing this movie, and uh, you know, with stunt work, you do a, a lot of handheld, or sometimes you do handheld, or you jump into the Russian arm vehicle, or you go to a spider cam shot where we're doing, you know, flying the uh, camera uh, on a cable system and all." So so, you know, as as an operator, you want to be hopefully proficient at every aspect of it. You know, I, I don't do steady cam, so I don't even, you know, I, I don't uh, uh, do that. But but I do aerials. I do Russian arm, pursuit arm. I do, you know, a lot of different things. And then handheld is one of the things for fight sequences. Uh, you, It's really good to be proficient at that because uh, to do a fight sequence sequence well you want to bring the camera into the fight and you know uh if you ever shoot a fight sequence uh don't worry about crossing the line the, the more you can cross the line the uh, because you know if you've ever been in a fight no one's paying attention to the line you get a hit here hit here whatever so you you want it you want it to be confusing and purposely changing the, the shot so you don't know where the hell the hits are coming from that's a good thing that's that's you know the way it should be and so if you're doing that handheld it allows you to quickly uh, maneuver uh, that on the fly and it, it makes it uh, the less the audience know, knows what's coming the more exciting uh, that, that fight can be and the more you can be into the shot so black swan it was going to be all handheld. We shot that with the uh, Airy 416, shot all film. Um, Darren Aronofsky likes Super 16. He just loves the grit of it. And although you could absolutely scan, you know, Vision Super 16 to where it looks as if you're you're shooting uh, 35 millimeter or shooting, you know, Alexa digital or what have you. So, but he wants it gritty. So. You've got a smaller target area that that makes it a little easier to get there. The the lenses we're using just prime lenses. The package is so small I could just keep it on my shoulder and we could talk through the shot. And I wouldn't even really think about it. it you can almost one hand this camera, um, and it's got an optical eyepiece. So what you're seeing there's no latency. Whereas digital, you still have a little slight amount of delay. So th- things are being fed to your optic nerve, but just with a slight delay in it, and it's hard to be uh, reactionary, you know, or to predict when you're still waiting on a little bit of information. So the nice thing about a, a film camera with an optical eyepiece is that you're seeing things about to happen as they, before they get into the ground glass area. And so that's that's really nice, even though you, you can say on a digital viewfinder, as you're seeing stuff coming in where you think you get a hint of uh, something coming in, it's actually already happening. So, so the really nice thing about that movie still shot on film 416 is like, I think the best handheld camera ever designed. It's after a hundred years of 
you know, camera building, Ari comes up with this magnificent tool, fits right on your shoulder and it just stays there, you know, so it, it's real nodal to your, to your brain, to your optic nerve training, getting ready to understand how to be a part of that, that dance routine. And then I got there a couple of weeks ahead just to kind of help or help myself and then rehearse and understand the, the choreography. Um, and Darren was really, uh, you know, wanting to, that the camera, you know, to part of the, it needed to be a dance partner to uh, Natalie's work and to, you know, to all the dancers, but, uh, you know, so to have that, um, you know, to have that, uh, that interplay was really uh, important. So, so I showed up, like, I wanted to be able to say like, okay, I, can I do this? <laughs> and so I better be in shape and, and all. And so that's, uh, so that was really Maddie. Uh, so gracious. Uh, um, he asked me to do that. I just didn't want to disappoint, you know? And so it was really a, um, a wonderful project to, to be a part of. Uh, our big kahuna last question is uh, what's the last great thing you watched? And it can be a first time mm. viewing or it can be a revisit. Um, that is a good question. I've been, you know, looking at a lot of documentaries, which I love. And, hmm. and, and in the meantime, you can tell us a little bit about the documentary that you're working on now. Oh, well, this is, uh, this is not a documentary, but it's a, it's a Hula project. It's, it's an eight uh, part series based on the book Dope Sick. And it's, uh, um, you can IMDb it and find out a lot of information. It's Michael Keaton, Rosario Dawson, uh, Barry Levinson is, is the, was the lead director to do the first two episodes. And it's, it's about the, uh, Oxycontin epidemic, Purdue Pharma, and, um, and just a lot of the madness, the criminality of, uh, what was going on there and, and, uh, really a great, great project so that those projects don't come around often do, do you know where that will be released and when uh, it'll be hulu so it's a disney hulu and not sure i i think sometime later this year for you know hopefully later this year and uh, i don't know if it's going to be eight hours streamed or if it's it'll be a weekly episodic uh thing but it's it's an eight eight Part series eight hours and uh, and it should be uh, a fantastic project and uh, so yeah it'll be on Hulu get on Disney and, and Hulu for um, uh, greenlighting a project like this they they can't do enough of that to be true well I think that's a natural conclusion so thank you so much for Joseph Sissio for coming on he worked on you know. Iron Man 1 and 2 and Black Swan and Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3 and uh, a bunch of movies that we like and care about. So thanks so much for your time. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for uh, you know, for having me on board. And I can't wait to see what you guys go out and do. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll cross paths again. Right. <laughs> yeah? Was that a good episode? Is this Christian Bale, Batman? It's the episode our listeners deserve, but not the one they need right now. You kind of look like um a silent guardian, like a watchful protector right now. A dark they night! Need... Yeah, a nice way of saying a dark night. Someone knows where he is! Can you do a Michael Keaton, Batman? I want you to tell your friends about me.
<laughs> That's pretty good. I'm Batman. Nice. I think Christian Bale's Batman voice is too low and too raspy. I know. I know. Part of the point is is per, is distortion. I think it's ridiculous, and especially when he's talking alone or with people who know that he's Bruce Wayne, he still does the voice whenever he's in the costume. And that's part of what makes it lovely because. You know what it is? It's a superhero movie, which brings us to Spider-Man Two. Joseph Sissio was a great guy. We we think he we think he was a lovely interviewee. Trent. Yeah, what a delightful character. Thanks for coming on our show. Yeah, and so check us out next week. We're going to be discussing our own thoughts on Spider-Man Two with a very special guest, a former teacher, professor, mentor, friend, uh, and fellow podcaster. Adam Volerich. Yeah, he has his own podcast called Eye of the Duck. And um It's pretty it's good. Really it's really good. It's kinda like ours, but a little bit better. Um and it's also a movie podcast. Um but yeah, you can look them up on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Um yeah, we talked about Spider Man two and it was pretty awesome because it's Spider Man two week. Undeniably. And again, just to shout out his pod again, off the record, he told us some very exciting things that are happening there. So if you're not listening, you should check them out right now. But people should, um, I guess if they've come this far, they should like, they should rate our page. Wouldn't that be nice of them? Or they can like follow us on yeah, Instagram. Uh, there are Twitter, places where everything. we can be reached. Yeah, I don't know Trent, much do about make, Twitter. Do you want to make, do you want to make a craft services TikTok? No, no. Wait, dude, like, the, the the bad thing about that is, like, it seems like there were just a bunch of 12-year-olds there, but, it, like, everyone I know who's gone on TikTok and put in a few brain cells of effort into it has really, you know, uh, amassed, like, uh, like a, a big following of children. So, And I, I really think that's how to succeed in business these days, but I don't know if 12-year-olds are listening to podcasts. And that's why next week you can check us out. We're actually indefinitely moving solely to TikTok. You can listen to our interviews in 12-second bits. <laughs> I, I've never been on TikTok. What goes down there? It's just an endless... It seems, it seems like a dark place. Wait, don't you have one? I have one, yeah. It's just an endless stream of content, Trent. Yeah, I mean, after Spider-Man 2, and then, there, and then it's Judas Week, and then... Uh... Who knows what's coming? We do. And then... Yeah, yeah. All right. All right, I think we I think we've kind of run out of things to say.